0: Today's podcast is brought to you by Elenco Animal Health and Kelly's Finance. Hello, I'm Kerry Lunigan. Welcome to The Weekly Grill. A new record was set in Australia's beef industry recently. It uh, passed almost without notice actually, but for feedlotters it must have been gratifying. For the first time, grain-fed cattle... He 50% of all numbers processed in the December quarter. But of even greater significance, perhaps, was the volume of beef this represented, 54.5%. Let's hear now from the President of the Australian Lot Feeders Association, Barb Madden. From Smithfield Feedlot in southern Queensland, Barb Madden, you're on the grill with Beef Central. Welcome.
1: Hello, Terry. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, you're now in the feedlot hot seat. Feed grain prices. Let's start with those. They are super hot at present. Margins must surely be very thin for lot feeders. What's the actual mood through the industry?
1: Well, look, it is um, unprecedented times. Um, And yes, grain prices are very high, so are um, cattle prices. So we've got this kind of perfect storm happening at the moment where um, the lot feeding industry is facing some significant challenges. You know, we've had some great seasons, or a great season, and we've got plenty of grain around, which is wonderful, but we've got these global impacts starting to uh, ripple through the industry, whether it's you know COVID-related or you know sh- the shipping logistics and the war in Ukraine. So grain prices are high, but I think the one thing that I've learned about this industry is that we are a resilient bunch, uh, we understand our numbers, and uh, we will get through this.
0: Feed grain prices are... Uh Touching $450 a, a, a tonne, I've heard some some feedlots are actually left with two or three weeks supply before they could uh, bring some in. It, it's very tight, isn't it, when you're operating like that?
1: Yes, it is. But as I said, there's these, um, there's these global impacts that are all, um, you know, coming together at one point in time, which are causing these concerns for feedlots. But as I said, you know, this is what we do every day. We manage logistics of commodities and cattle coming and going, uh, and, you know, and, and we've had some significant weather events, uh, you know, certainly in Queensland and New South Wales. So, Feedlotters are, um, you know, we're very familiar with managing challenges. So it's what we do every single day. And I'm confident that the feedlot industry will will ride through this and it'll be a very memorable uh, time in lot feeding, that's for sure.
0: Some figures to be proud of those uh, December quarter figures, grain-fed cattle represented 50% of cattle processed for the first time ever. And the production of actual beef, fifty-four and a half percent of total beef from feedlots. That's uh, the five-year average is only forty-four point eight percent. That's pretty uh, pleasing for the industry broadly.
1: Absolutely, and I think this, these figures go to show that the the role that feedlots now play in the beef supply chain. You know, we're a professional um, sector, and we uh, we're here to produce high-quality, consistent beef. And I know that that's what processes of are looking for they want um, you know they want products to specification on time, and I think you know gone are the years where feedlots were you know when it was dry we'd fill up, and then when the rains would come and the pastures would grow all the cattle would empty out you know and so it was this boom bust cycle, and I think you know in the in the two thousands early two thousands and and then into the after kind of twenty ten. Our systems are now very professional, we're corporatised to a point where we understand our numbers, we know exactly what we need to do to create um, that high quality beef every single day, and I think that is reflected in those uh, December quarter figures.
0: And the cattle on feed capacity now up to 1.45 million, and carcass weights are a new record high, 343 kilograms, that's terrific stuff.
1: It sure is. And it all works towards, you know, providing this high quality beef to our international markets. Like the demand is still there. They want safe, high quality, nutritious beef to feed their families right around the world. So I think this is exactly why, uh, the feedlot industry is here and we're here to stay. And, and, and I think it's about this division and specialization of our sectors. So we've got the rangelands guys who are good at growing their pastures, good at managing those breeding and growing out operations. And then we've got the feedlot sector, which are good at finishing them to a point, um, you know, in a shorter amount of time. And then you've got the processors who, you know, fundamentally turn an animal into 100 products going to 100 different countries. So each section across the supply chain is sophisticated and, uh, you know, feedlots are just a part of that supply chain now.
0: Barb, um, your uh, background, your grandfather, I understand, came from Ireland around 100 years ago and he was a butcher. How did the cattle business emerge out of what your grandfather did?
1: He did, actually. He emigrated from Ireland in 1922. He was 16 years old and he moved to this Profton area. So I'm currently sitting here in Profton, looking out my window over at the feedlot, and uh, my grandfather, as a sixteen year old obviously took a shine to cattle and farming and then by nineteen twenty eight he actually opened his first butcher shop he then was opened another two uh, locally and supplied beef locally to the communities around Proxton for several years
0: so when did you move from rangeland cattle into with the feedlot business
1: Yeah, so then uh, my father uh, started taking over the breeding operation in the late 60s early 70s and then in the 80s um, one of our local the lo- local feed manufacturer approached us and said would we be interested in beginning a feedlot so in 1986 we started with 120 head-on feed one of our first clients was uh, the Briggs family from Springshaw and you know the rest is history from from that point onwards so from 120 head to we currently are operating uh, two feedlots across two different sites and they uh, both twenty thousand head feedlots, so in a fairly busy journey for us,
0: Kerry. Yes, early times. I'm thinking about the early '90s when there was quite a severe drought around. That must have been a bit of a problem for a lot of people, but especially for relatively new feedlots.
1: Exactly. Uh, it was. It was a challenging time, and I remember my mum. She said, "You know, in the 1996 beef crash, she said uh, she there was a feedlot emptied out. Uh, we had to lay off." several staff and my brother Jason as a matter of fact was home working on the farm and he had to go off and um, drive harvesters down south so it was it was a fairly dire situation for us and mum recalls receiving a um, a phone call from the bank saying you need to stop writing cheques so (laughs) it was (laughs) that's about the worst phone call I think anyone can receive So so yeah Fairly
0: so, devastating. Bob, uh, back then, uh, you, uh, since then, have you noticed a change in the type of cattle you see going on to feed these days? But uh, by that I mean that in the drought period, a lot of those cattle come onto the market, which normally would grow to be big, fat, grass-fed bullocks. Uh, but now they they almost went onto feedlots, didn't they, when in the drought because they had to go somewhere. There was no grass around. But now there's uh, feed grass everywhere. Is it harder to get the numbers and into the feedlot?
1: Well, the lot feeding industry feeds a whole range of cattle. So there's many different cattle classes. Um, there's many different markets, international markets that take all different types of animals. So um, most feedlots have a number of different cattle classes. And as I said, you know, no longer is it about this drought, uh, drought and flooding rains kind of business model. It's about consistent supply of the product to processes. So those international markets and to a certain extent, the domestic markets are I set there what they what they're chasing, and and that's what lot feeders do. We go about procuring those cattle to fit those cattle classes to meet those endpoint specifications. So, yeah, we take a whole different range of cattle um, over varying different feeding periods.
0: Do you feed wagyu there as well? Custom feed wagyu?
1: Yes, yes, we do. And wagyu is obviously a very popular um, cattle class being fed across many feedlots around. Uh, around the country.
0: Obviously a different feed to to, uh, regular cattle, but they stay on for a lot longer. That must take a bit of juggling.
1: Yeah, it does. But uh, we find, uh, you know, the Wagyu breed is a very resilient, robust cattle class. So they come on feed and they're relatively easy to look after. They um, they have good health um, and they're, they're pretty much... Stress-free, and 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 that's the other thing. You know, they're on feed for such a, a long period of time. You don't have to do too much with them. You know, there's not the labour requirement to, you know, pen exits and arrivals coming all of the time. They just sit and relax and enjoy their life uh, in feedlot land.
0: You're on the grill with Kerry Lunigan and Barb Madden. Barb is president of the Australian Lot Feeders Association. Back after this short break. Don't let your cattle suffer the setbacks caused by buffalo fly. Combat buffalo fly
1: with Corral Patriot and Silence Insecticidal Ear Tags.
0: Providing up to four months of long-lasting fly control. Elanco has you covered with a range of ear tags to suit your rotation program. Contact Elanco and find out how you can win the buffalo fly battle now. Welcome back. Kerry Lonigan here with Barb Madden. Barb, of course, is President of the Australian Lot Feeders Association. Now, do you feel, as president of Alpha, do you feel the outside pressure on your industry? And by that, I mean animal welfare issues. They seem to be getting highlighted from uh, city folk mostly. Is that concern a constant worry?
1: In short, yes. I think this was really highlighted in two thousand and eleven with the live export ban. I think that was one of the one of the turning points in industry where we saw one day there was a thriving industry, and the next day. It was closed. So I think, you know, that's almost, that's over a decade ago now. And I think that really made a lot of industries, animal industries, sit up and go, wow, that's really quite frightening. So from that point, I think, and Alpha has been always very proactive about animal welfare and environmental sustainability. And that's evidenced through our um, National Feedlot Accreditation Scheme, which was actually one of the first quality assurance programs in Australia. So that's been in operation, I think, 28 years this year. So Alpha have been on the front foot of that and almost pioneering that sort of stuff for a very long time. But I think that live export ban just really highlighted, you know, consumer sentiment and governments can just really shut down your business. So Alpha have been doing a lot of good work in this space over a number of years. And, and that's that's for the benefit of the industry, and and it's a byproduct that it also then is uh, satisfying consumer expectations. Uh,
0: Bob, did the industry make security of their feedlots a must-have issue since that dreadful invasion of out of Melmeron a couple of years ago?
1: I've spoken to a lot of feedlots, and there's been a lot of work done on biosecurity because that's just one of the actual fundamentals of running any business is ensuring any visitors that come on site there is, you know, we have strict protocols um to keep those cattle, uh, the well being of the cattle and understanding who's coming and going. Um, you know, that's just one of those guidelines that we all obey. But it really that was just such a shocking thing to think that people could actually um come on site and, and invade your, your private land. But I think Alpha been very proactive We've been communicating with slot feeders about what the protocols are, if that actually happens. You know, and if that actually happens, uh, we were thinking the other day, if it actually happened to us, we'd say, well, you know, we wish you'd you'd have actually called earlier and we could have, you know, got a bus and taken you for a tour around because we actually have nothing to hide, I think is the thing as an industry. So I'm not sure if I've answered your question there, but I, I think those farm invasions is just one aspect of consumers who probably don't understand exactly what we do. and so it kind of highlighted to alpha that you know, we actually need to be transparent and communicate some of the production systems that we
0: use. Bob, the best example of transparency feedlots I saw in America many years ago at, in Oklahoma in a what was virtually a feedlot town it was surrounded by four or five 100,000 head feedlots. One of the feedlots had a special area for visitors. They get tourist buses in there. They had a viewing platform. They were showing a movie. Everything is explained to them, and then they would stand on the big grandstand, stand overlooking the feedlots, watching the cattle being fed. The the community embraced the feedlots and made them a tourist attraction. (laughs) I mean, I, I I don't know whether it could happen here in Australia, but that's their attitude in the United States, or at least part of the United States. Could it happen here, do you think, if we uh, worked it the right way?
1: Well, I think, you know, we're actually working on that um, in uh, one of the committees that Alpha has, is, is how do we increase these industry tours, not only for curious consumers, but also engaging with the youth, young people, you know, giving them opportunities to come on, on site and actually gain a real understanding with with the work that we do and why we do it. And interestingly, I've been working with our local school around bringing school children on site and and their teachers, because I think that's also important. It's making sure that the the teachers that are teaching our children actually understand why we're here, why we exist, what we do, and why we do it. So, I think you know your US model is is one avenue, but I think there's a whole host of ways that we can that Alpha are working on. Um, on doing that, and, and Alpha have also worked very hard on creating a website called the, and I encourage all the listeners to go to grainfedbeef.com.au. And that was also designed for curious consumers or for anyone really wanting to know more about our industry.
0: Let's t- talk now about Asparagosis taxiformis. What progress is being made in foodlots' lots carbon emissions? And or methane emissions, I should say. I mean, there's a lot of talk about what's actually been done and what is planned here.
1: I'll start at a high level there. You know, Alpha has been very proactive about supporting MLA in their um, carbon neutral by 2030 mission. And, you know, since 2005, the red meat industry has halved, greater than halved our greenhouse gas emissions, you know, through, you know, improved land and herd management practices. So we're already uh, starting off on a really positive front there. When it comes to what Alpha are doing in that space, I mean, remembering that we are, you know, we are the specialised section within the beef supply chain where we can produce, we can finish an animal in a shorter period of time creating Greater sustainability for you know pasture management and and you know the resources being used in the feedlot, so that's an efficient way of using you know improving sustainability. And then of course we've got all of this new R and D that's being uh, researched. And and this was something that Alpha identified uh, you know almost five years ago. How can we look at reducing methane emissions? From cattle on feed, and so through some R and D trials that uh, were run by MLA, there were two products actually researched at the time. One was called Treenop, and one was called uh, this red seaweed. And both have been very uh, positive in their results in methane reduction, up to you know almost ninety percent. So very very positive R and D trial occurring. So to answer your question, Arthur
0: has been very proactive in this space. So taking the feedlot experiment further, I'm assuming there's some thought given to marketing carbon neutral beef out of feedlots. Would that be a too big a call or is that on the horizon as well?
1: I, thought, I, I think that's a, a space for, you know, branded beef owners and, and, and I believe that that's already happening now, Kerry. From a Alpha perspective, we're all about ensuring that we are across latest technology uh, in, you know, products that can be used to reduce methane emissions, looking at uh, – and, and that is something that Alpha is active in. So I think it's, it's a really – and it's such a big, complex space and I know there's a lot of businesses – doing their own work to market their own you know beef in this way. So and the other thing that Alpha which this is the thing that I found really interesting Kerry is that the Australian national greenhouse accounting framework they set a number that this was the number that feedlots in Australia were emitting methane. Now MLA did a research uh, project recently that actually looked at well how did they arrive at that number? Now, that number was based on a study that was done in 1979 based off a dairy herd. So that's almost 40 years ago. The Australian government is using a number that was just had no relevance to the feedlot industry. So I just thought, well, actually, let's get our numbers right. Like, what number is the correct number? And then we've got a good starting point to actually... Be reporting against that number. So I just thought that was a tremendous bit of um, research that was done by MLA, and perhaps nobody knows about that. But just such a vital thing to ensure our industry is is reporting against the correct number.
0: So you've been getting the cuts over some some numbers written forty three years ago. I I can't believe that. It's astounding. It's
1: astonishing, isn't it?
0: Time for a quick break, and this time we're hearing from our podcast partner, Kelly's Finance Group. Established since 1988, Kelly's Finance Group have the finance solutions when it comes to agribusiness lending, from property loans and livestock funding to machinery and vehicle finance. They are the experts in arranging finance on behalf of their clients that not only ensures market-leading interest rates but more importantly, financing that is suited to your agricultural operations not your lender's bottom line or their preferred security position. With access to an array of specialist and traditional finance providers, there's no job too big or too small for the Kelly's Finance Group team. Contact Kelly's Finance Group today for an independent and confidential discussion on how we can add value to your business moving forward. Welcome back. Uh, Barbara. That, perhaps that's on the agenda for BeefX, which I'll give you the chance to give a plug now. It's on in uh, mid-October in Brisbane. Oh, it
1: is. And we're very excited. After, what, two and a half years of being locked down and not being able to do anything and everything's been converted to online or or, or cancelled, so many events cancelled, um, BeefX is, is on and we're super excited. We're drafting the program now, and yeah, it's going to be fabulous. And I, I genuinely love our conferences because the lot feeding community is a real, it, we're very close knit and I, I liken it to a community. It's, it's almost like a family. you you've, we all come together and there's a lot of people have been in the industry for a very long time and it's like catching up with old friends and family. So it's just a wonderful community that Alpha has created over a number of years, and BFex is our, you know, gala event. So you'll have to come, Kerry. I'll get you a personalised invitation. <laughs> thank you.
0: Thank you, Barbara. A reminder that's on the Alpha website, full details. It's on in, uh, I think, 18th of October from memory starts at uh, the Brisbane uh, Showgrounds, and uh, yes. full, full details on your website. Now, Barbara, I can't let you go without asking you about your unusual hobby. You and <laughs> both you and your husband... Got into running marathons. How in the heavens did that start when you're out in the bush like that?
1: Oh well, um, it started with my husband turning fifty, and I thought, what do you get your husband after so many years? Uh, what what do you get to someone turning fifty? I wanted something pretty fast, you know, pretty special. And my cousin said, well, you should buy him a ticket to the New York Marathon, and I, I said, don't be ridiculous. You know, that's just so crazy. And and my cousin Tom said, oh, you should do it too. And I, Anyway, over the next three weeks, Tom basically convinced Don and I, or myself, to buy Don a ticket to the New York Marathon. And um, we set about training. And, I mean, I'm not a runner. Don had done a couple of, you know, half marathons before. So I'm literally Googling how to run a marathon in 12 weeks. And I found a program and I printed it out. And around that time, my sister had had her first child and um, he had been diagnosed with Down syndrome. And I said to my husband, we're going to run this marathon, but we're also going to raise money to support um, people with disabilities. So we ended up raising, you know, money for the local charity in Kingaroy. And in 12 weeks, we got ourselves fit enough to be able to run this amazing events uh, we, we worked out we did over a thousand kilometers in 12 weeks it was amazing it, it was i totally recommend to anyone out there who wants to challenge themselves even if you can't run anyone can do it so it, you it actually wonderful.
0: you and your husband actually ran through the streets of new york in that famous marathon
1: we did. We ran through the five boroughs of New York. Yes. We started on uh, Staten Island and you weave your way through and it was, it was amazing. You, you watch all these movies over your lifetime and you're running past, you know, all of these famous buildings and it was certainly a different uh, track to the one that we were, had done all of our training <laughs> online. We were going out and back along this one road across cattle bridges and you know, we were oftentimes getting up at two o'clock in the morning to make sure we could get our long runs in and then off to work. So we were very focused, very disciplined, but it was yeah, just a truly wonderful experience. And just, I will also add, I was really keen to get a holiday as well. And I thought this could be the only way I'm going to get a holiday to actually force my husband to run in a marathon. So (laughs) Uh,
0: I have to mention, at times, What, what did you run for the marathon?
1: Oh, well, my husband wanted to do an under four hours, and he Gee, did. that's a
0: big effort. That's a big effort. Well, first
1: time, he, yeah. I think he did 406 or something, you know. Yes. So he was so close, but he finished in a whole world of hurt. He, he was really in a lot of pain, and I did, I think I did five hours, you know, five and a bit hours. So I'm no runner by any stretch, but it, for me, it was just about not stopping, just get in and have a go and. Yeah, so it was it was wonderful.
0: I oh, Look, as a former 10K runner with fantasies about running a marathon but never actually doing it, I admire your grit. It's just unbelievable that you actually did it on such a short, short notice. Very well done, Barb. Fantastic.
1: Yeah, thank you. And we actually went on the following year to run the Amsterdam Marathon. We we kind of got the bug then and thought this was a great way my to goodness, see the world. My goodness. And you actually get marathons. to... Really experience the city when you're running and you're actually leaving part of yourself there because it does hurt. It's, um, mm-hmm. it's, it's fairly, uh, taxing, but, and it's a lot of emotional, uh, discipline that's required, not emotional, mental discipline that's required to, um, and a bit emotional too. I remember crying at something. <laughs>
0: Well so done. Congratulations.
1: So, look, yeah,
0: anyway, look, thank you, Kerry. Look, I'm sure the fortitude you need to run marathons will stand you in good stead in agri-politics. Thank you so much for joining us on The Grill. Barb Madden, on thank- behalf of Beef Central, thank you.
1: Thank you, Kerry. Thank you.
0: And thank you for joining me today. Until next time, I'm Kerry Lonigan, and this is The Weekly Grill, brought to you by Alenco Animal Health and the Kelly's Finance Group.